Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. We have been talking about how we reflect that love to one another. We've been talking about over the last couple of weeks and will for the next couple of weeks how to be as great a community as we can be, as Jesus has called us to be, looking at what scripture teaches us about how to be really great community. Last week, we also talked about what Taylor Swift might teach us about how to be really great community. So if you missed that one, you may want to go back and check that out. Part of what we distilled uh, from the Swifties uh, is the, these three words. I want to throw these up here uh, on the screen for you uh, so you can see those as a reminder. Authenticity, belonging, and contribution. Uh, we see uh, Taylor Swift uh, create this feeling for her fans that she is being real in her lyrics. They can see their lives in them. It all feels very authentic, real life to them. Uh, we see this culture created, this sense of belonging, this bonding with 70,000 other screaming people, uh, also singing, I think, but mostly screaming from what I understand and the videos I have seen, uh, and how they contribute to this movement, this movement where they believe their presence matters. Now, not just because they're present in Swifties, but also because they are present in Scripture, I think these three words help form the basis for a really great community. And so last week, we dug into authenticity. You're going to hear it come up again today. Uh, this week, I want to zero in on belonging. We're going to talk about belonging. And to do that, I want to talk about political values fraternal organizations, and confrontation. Okay. We'll st- <laughs> People are like, buckling up. Here we go. All right. Uh, let's start with politics then, as long as we're all buckled in. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time here. Um, I just want us to notice and pay attention to the values of the political messages uh, around us. Now, I will say I'm going to talk about politics like there are only two parties. So for all of you who choose C, D, or E on your ballot, I apologize. I'm just going to talk about the two primary uh, political parties, ends of the spectrum, uh, really. So uh, just ask you to bear with me through that. I I want us to notice what the highest values of these two political parties are. Because I think we hear a lot about issues and taking a side of an issue. We hear about morality and what is the most moral thing. Uh, We hear about how to vote and some instructions, some messages. I'm not sure we ever take the time to really think through what values are being presented or or held up uh, in these situations. So I would like to submit to you, that the highest political values, depending on which side of the aisle you may be talking to, the highest values in our political system are individual uniqueness and individual freedom. Individual uniqueness and individual freedom. On the left, it is uh, uniqueness and rights and labels, and on the right, it is freedoms and rights and liberty. Similar word, you may notice like these... These two values don't sound the same for 
two parties who keep telling each other how different they are. These values sure sound awfully similar. The, the words are similar. We, they lead to very different outcomes, very different messages, different priorities. And yet these values of individual uniqueness and individual freedom do end up overlapping in such a way that we actually use the same words to talk about very different political uh, positions. So you will hear uh, things like, uh, you be you, or my body, my choice. People talking about very different sides of very different issues using the same words. So what you are going to hear a lot over the next year or so, because these values are so prominent, and you're like, I have never heard these phrases spoken out of a politician's mouth, and you won't. But you will hear, you be you, you'll hear my body, my choice. You will, talk, you will hear people talk about be your own person, think for yourself, and also come together and vote for me. Don't let anybody tell you what to think, but think like I do and come vote for me. Be your own person, don't get hooked to anything, but please come together and all agree that you are going to vote for me. Now, these are contradictory ideas, right? You can't just be your own individual, unique, individually free person, untethered from anybody around you, and come together in a group of people who all vote and think the same way. So how are politicians holding up these values? And I think if you look, you'll see them everywhere. How are they holding up these values of individual uniqueness and individual freedom and calling people to come together? How are they bringing people together while saying you be you in everything? Well, with the oldest trick in the book, this is not new. We have been doing this as humanity forever. The fastest way to get people to come together over anything is through anger and fear. So we get brought together through anger and fear. Make sure that you know that you are morally superior to them. So uh, be angry about the unmoral things, Im unmoral? Immoral things that those people over there are doing and be very afraid that they might get to your children. So you will hear this over and over for the next year or so. You be you, but also be very afraid of them being them. So come together, vote for me. Is that really what it means for people to belong to something? Do we just need to be angry and afraid of the same things? Is belonging really found in being in 70,000 people screaming for a concert or a football team? Where do we, where do we actually find some sense of belonging? In the late 1940s, the generation who had been born in the wake of World War I and was now trying to create a life in the wake of World War II started coming together and signing up for things. Because signing up was how they had won the war and signing up was how they were going to change the world. So they signed up to be Masons and Elks and Shriners. They signed up for PTA and they signed up for church. Being a member of something was this sense of pride and togetherness and community. Now, it is also worth remembering 
that even in that era, so much of the coming together of Americans was out of fear of what those communists might be doing. Maybe we'll talk more about that next week. Now, the signing up, we're going to sign up to change the world. We're going to belong to these organizations, uh, and we're going to win uh, culture through these organizations. We're going to change the world this way. This signing up mentality did not last from generation to generation. All of those organizations that I listed, including uh, churches in America, mostly reached peak membership in the late 1950s. Membership has been dwindling with some ups and downs in all of those organizations since. For instance, Freemason membership is less than 30% of what it was at its high point. It was nearly 4 million people in 1954. 60 years later, it was down to 1.2 million. Elks membership is down under 50% of what it was just 40 years ago. Shriners has shrunk in half in the last 25 years. And what I, what I want to do is I actually want to take a moment to point out how these two seemingly very different topics of political values and the decline in membership of fraternal organizations are actually connected. Or at least I'm going to try to make the case. So we'll see uh, how this goes. Fraternal organizations, churches, and PTAs were created as an intermediary between an individual and really big problems. There were things that felt overwhelming. There were things that felt global and huge. There were problems just as we looked around our own community that we didn't know who was on our side and who wasn't. And in all of the suspicion and uh, scarring that we weren't talking about after World War II, these organizations seemed to create a covering between individuals and the big problems of the world. A really mundane example. For one parent to raise the money necessary for whatever it is that they needed to see happen at the school, for one parent to advocate for the kids of the school in whatever way they needed to would feel lonely and overwhelming. But you get together with a bunch of other parents and you call it a PTA or a PTO or whatever it may be and you're working with the teachers and now all of a sudden, everybody's working in the same direction. You don't have to bear that burden alone. A a more global example. Ending a disease that is paralyzing millions of children around the world would be seemingly impossible for one person to do. But Rotary has essentially eliminated polio in all but two countries in the world in just 35 years. One individual couldn't just mathematically, couldn't possibly pass out millions of Bibles or convince hotels to carry them in their bedside tables. But Gideon's has handed out 2.5 billion, with a B, Bibles in the last 125 years. These kinds of numbers, this kind of movement like screaming in a stadium for a Taylor concert or a football game, 
makes people feel like they belong to something, like they are a part of something bigger than themselves, a part of something that is making a difference in the world. And yet, as baby boomers saw these organizations as unnecessary, as Gen X saw them as irrelevant, as millennials did a collective shrug, as politicians and social media empires kept pounding the drum of individual uniqueness and individual freedom, these organizations are disappearing. Memberships down across the board. Now, you may think that's good, bad. That's not actually what I'm here to make a case about. We, at this point, uh, particularly, I would say, millennial generations on down, We'd rather be unique and free than be a member of anything. We ask questions like, okay, but how does being a member benefit me? And for those of you who are afraid this is going to be a sermon on membership, I promise it is not. We'll get to that in a second. Here's the thing, though. Human beings have an innate desire to belong to something, to some group of people. Every religion and scientific theory uh, and social research teaches this truth. And in the Western world that most of us, uh, our, our ancestors were a part of, in the Western world, for centuries, people would belong to the same town, the same church, the same region for most, if not all of their lives and probably for generations and generations This is just where you were from and where you lived, where you stayed, where you died. And then there were cars and suburbs and mobility. And in lieu of a hometown or home church, people started belonging to these kinds of organizations. And now, in lieu of churches and PTAs and other organizations, people are looking for something else to belong to. Maybe it's the Swifties. Maybe it's the Twelves. Maybe it is an angry political party. But what does it mean to actually belong to something to belong to a group of people. It can't possibly mean we're all angry together because that is not sustainable. If for no other reason than because if you think this through, one person gets angry at something and they convince other people to be angry with them at that thing. And now they're all lined up shoulder to shoulder and we are angry together. Look at us belonging in our anger. And then somebody sees something else to be angry at and they go, hey, we should all be angry at that thing too. And about half the people in their group go, actually, I kind of like that. What do you mean you kind of like that? How could you possibly like that? And now the anger has turned on each other and it has uh, splintered and fractured. And uh, we see this in politics. um, And uh, sadly, we have seen it in the church over and over and over and over again in the last number of centuries. Some of that helpful and a lot of it not. Concerts and football games are temporary belonging at best. Part of why there is the day after, after some big event like that, the, the day after the concert that just feels like such a letdown because the belonging that rushed through uh, your senses, your brain the night before just can't 
last. It dwindles as the experience turns into a memory. Membership definitely does not equal belonging. I mean, we have membership here at East Hills. We are are hoping to uh, present people in membership sometime in the next few weeks. And membership uh, is a step, uh, a gateway of sorts here to a couple of very specific ways of contributing to the community. But you do not have to be a member here to belong here. Partly because uh, membership is a relatively new concept in human history. And scripture throughout the New Testament teaches us over and over again the importance of belonging and the belonging will in fact be a marker of a healthy Christ-centered community. For instance, uh, in Romans chapter 12, which uh, those of you who've been following along may have noticed this is the third week in a row we're going to Romans 12. I did not do that on purpose. I was not intending to do a series on Romans 12, but it contains all the stuff we're talking about. So Romans 12, I'm gonna start in verse four. Paul writes to the Roman church, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Now, Paul uh, was a prolific church planter and uh, letter writer writing encouragement and admonition to churches around the region that he had uh, planted or uh, saw himself as some authority over. And one of his favorite metaphors for us, for the church, is body, is the, the body of Christ. And so he talks about how we uh, contribute to the community in different ways. And the next few verses talk about that contribution. And again, we will get to that uh, next week. It talks about things like how the, the eye and the ear can't work against each other and still be part of a healthy body right? That, that they need to be uh, working in the same direction for the same uh, purposes, aiming for the same good. And in the same way, we are called to come into a Christ-centered community uh, and work toward uh, the same good, to uh, belong to each other just as much as the eye or the ear belongs to the body. And I would uh, argue that the rest of this chapter really answers our question, what does it mean to belong, to belong to each other? And maybe that phrase strikes you a little bit funny. I'm not sure why, but there is something in me that, that kind of trips on that phrase. Something about the sense of belonging. I'm, I'm okay with that being a sensory thing, but, but to belong to someone, like, you don't own me. What do you mean I belong to each other? And, and I think all of that is true. And if that is rising up in you, you are not alone. If that's just me, then I am alone, but that's okay. If we all desire to belong to something, to some group of people, how do we go about doing that? Yes, we belong to God first and foremost. 
But Paul calls on us, scripture calls on us to belong to each other as part of being the body of Christ. Christ lived out in our day and age. So again, the next few verses talk about sharing our gifts, contributing to the community. We will get there next week. And then we read uh, verses actually that we read last week. So skip down with me to Romans chapter 12, verse nine, where Paul writes, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. And so we engage, as we talked about last week, we engage with each other authentically with a genuine love. We show up as we really are with our good and our bad, and we love people as they really are, right where they are at, not just who we are hoping they become. A social scientist, Brene Brown, uh, did a lot of research into this idea of belonging. And uh, her conclusion was that the opposite of belonging is not actually rejection. The opposite of belonging is fitting in. Because fitting in is when we cannot show up authentically. When we show up trying to prove that we belong, trying to change ourselves in whatever way whatever way we need to, not to make healthy choices, not to grow, but when we start showing up just so we fit in as a self-defense against rejection to say, no, no, I can't show up authentically, so I'm going to fake it till I make it, right? The opposite of belonging is fitting in. We have to show up uh, authentically with this real genuine uh, love for others. And then Paul continues in Romans 12, verse 11, Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. This is more contribution language, right? Hospitality, hosting, serving, caring for uh, one another. But I I don't want to miss a key phrase right in the middle of this passage we just read. So let's look at verse 12 again. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Christian community is brought together by confident hope. Christian community is brought together by confident hope, not by anger and fear, Our hope is not in our circumstances or our political victories, but in the goodness and the victory and the eternal life of Christ. And not in Jesus as some gateway to some other good. It's not, well, Jesus, I will show up and follow you because I believe you are going to give me the comfort and the riches and all these things that I really want. But our confident hope is in Jesus Christ himself and what he has accomplished in the cross and what he accomplished when the stone was rolled away and he rose from the dead. Christian community is brought together by confident hope. In fact, I would argue that when a church gets off track, if East Hills ever gets off track, it will be because we have lost confidence in our hope. When churches get off track, I think it's because they've lost confidence in their hope. And so they get self-protective 
putting their hope in their reputation or their comfort or their safety instead of in Jesus. They get angry and afraid putting hope into government victories or circumstances and not in the eternal victory of Jesus. We, we are brought together not by anger and fear, not by moral superiority, but by a confident hope in Christ's grace and by the Holy Spirit that breathes that hope into us as believers and into our community. But Paul has more for us about belonging. Moving to verse 14, very next verse. He writes, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone to live in peace with everyone. I think we belong when we sense that we can be at peace with the people around us. That this could be a place, a people, that I can be at peace. And I think we innately know this. And so many, many communities and many, many families are happy to live with a fake peace. That as long as I'm smiling and you're smiling, I can believe that we're at peace and I can belong here and everything is going to be okay. But I think this is a call to us to pursue real peace. So I want to look at one teaching of Jesus about what it means to live at peace in his community of people. I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 18. We, we actually talked about living in peace a little bit uh, back, actually for a couple of weeks, back in uh, the spring. Uh, and I talked about the importance of being peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. And then uh, Jesse did a fantastic job of walking us through just the practicality of how we engage in peacemaking in our relationships, uh, in our families, in our community. So this is going to be a very brief run through uh, of some of uh, those things that we see here uh, in Matthew 18 laid out by Jesus. But if you want a more thorough teaching, uh, find our East Hill Sermon podcast in your podcast player on our website. It is right there in the Church Center app. Uh, go back to April 23rd uh, and listen to Jesse talk about how to do this one. So uh, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 18 starting in verse 15. And if you have a New Living Translation in front of you, like I do, they have titled this section, Correcting Another Believer. And I really don't like that title because it sounds like I'm right and you're wrong and I'm here to tell you just how wrong you really are. I think it would be much better phrase based on what Jesus actually says if it was called what to do when somebody else hurts you or living at peace with, one another. So here's Jesus walking us through this. Verse 15. If another believer 
sins against you. Go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won the person back. Okay, stop. There are more steps, uh, but to start with, I just want us to see that this is the opposite of fake peace, okay? Fake peace is live and let live, is get over it, is shake it off, shake it off, shake it off, right? Got the laugh from the right section, okay. That kind of attitude may help you keep moving, but it is not forgiveness and it is not peace. Living in peace actually means confronting the injustice in ourselves. To live at peace with who I am, I have to confront the injustice in me. As we talked about last week, authenticity is agreeing with God on what is true about me. And there are things that I do that are wrong and messed up. And the Bible calls those sins, they are unjust. They are against God. And I have to recognize those things and confront the injustice in me. Being a community of belonging means that we love each other too much to let the injustices go unaddressed in ourselves and in our relationships. That we confront the injustice within the community. That we're actually willing to look at somebody else and say, hey, you have hurt me. I'm not gonna go talking with a bunch of people about it. No gossip dressed up as prayer requests. I'm just talking to you to say, you hurt me to ask you to hear me out, to ask you to make it right. A quick side note. I think this is a fairly universal experience. I know it is mine. When somebody comes to you and says, hey, you hurt me, more often than not, if not almost all the time, you are going to feel like they are making too big a deal out of something. Because if it was actually that big a deal, you would have recognized it in the first place. And so they're going to come to you and you're going to be like, man, was that, I mean, all right, so I said the wrong thing. Like, is it that big? Yeah, okay. So it doesn't feel like that big of a deal to you. Apologize anyway. Make peace happen. Sometimes the accusation from the other person is going to hurt and then they have hurt you and you have to go that process and that route. Be willing to do it, to make peace happen. Peace doesn't just occur. It doesn't just happen on its own. Fake peace might, but real peace takes work. And, and I am a chief among sinners here. I hate this confrontation. I don't want to have these conversations. And yet, living in a fake peace simply lets the hurt swim in and around our families and our churches and our larger community. So I know uh, that this dismays many of us who would rather not have the conversation or rather not work for it, but it's true. It just takes work. And Jesus says that the result of going to this person, hopefully, is you have won the person back, that you enter into a restored relationship with that person. Okay, but what happens if they don't relent and repent? What then? 
Jesus continues in Matthew 18, verse 16. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. All right, lots to unpack here. We'll try to do it really quickly. Let's remember together that Jesus is not actually talking about going to the pastor, although that uh, may be necessary at some point to go to uh, church leadership as a pastor or our ministry board or whatever. Uh, there was actually no such thing at the time that Jesus is saying this. He is actually talking about going to the larger community, about bringing the community into the process. So here's how this works. Jesus, we're just going to run down the list. So Jesus says that first you go to the person on your own, not making a big deal about it, not dragging other people into it. You go to the person on, uh, on your own. You directly address them and hopefully that's the end. If not, you bring in someone who loves both of you and wants this situation, wants both of you to be able to find peace. This is not go find somebody who agrees with you and is ready to help you shame the other person, Okay. I think more church hurt has happened at that step of this thing than just about everything else. You go find somebody who's ready to commit to both of you, to loving both of you. This is about, this isn't about winning. I'm not trying to win a debate here. This is about belonging together and making peace. And then if they still won't listen, you gather leadership or you involve more people and you say, look, for the good of the community, my brother and I, my sister and I, we need help making peace. It's not, hey, I need you to come tell them that they're wrong. It's, hey, we need help making peace happen because belonging at its heart means choosing that it is not about you. So two more elements of living at peace that I want to highlight. And the first is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Uh, Because sometimes it takes step one or two or three, and then they relent and repent, and they're ready to change. And some of us actually have a really hard time at that point. Because we were prepared to be angry. We were prepared for them to be wrong and for us to be able to hold it against them. We were prepared to carry that chip on our shoulder and be bitter and whatever it may be for a long time. And then they repent and we're like Jonah in the Old Testament. We can go read that story where he's sitting out going, God, you did all the good stuff you said you were going to do and I'm angry about it. I'm bitter. And we go through life angry and bitter because we can't be angry and bitter at them, I guess. For some of us, we have to find it in ourselves to forgive. Now, sometimes they never relent, they never repent, and and we have to treat them like a tax collector or a pagan, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Because in common Jewish practice, that meant kicking them out. Those are people who did not get to belong in the Jewish community. But how did Jesus actually treat unbelievers and tax collectors. He invited them in. And even when they didn't choose it, he pursued them with love and grace and truth. He didn't let them in every time, but he left the door 
open. Now, I'll be honest, I almost didn't bring up forgiveness because the amount of misconception that I think we have culturally about what this means is a whole sermon in and of itself. I will not do a whole second sermon for you today. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, But it is too important to this sense of belonging, to belonging to one another for us to ignore it. So quickly, you can take as many notes as you want on this, or none at all. Forgiveness is not, well, just forget about it. Let's not forget about it. And we've already addressed that. That is fake peace. Forgiveness is confronting the feeling in us. Remembering that that we have been forgiven by God and reflecting that grace to other people. Uh, And if you want more on that, keep reading in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells a great story about that. Forgiveness is also not be a doormat. These are terribly worded English sentences, but I hope you all know what I mean. Forgiveness is not become a doormat. You can forgive someone, and if they haven't changed, set really firm boundaries to keep them out until they do. That is also part of what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, um, I would love to have us notice that there are three steps to this process. And after the first step, you're never actually alone with the other person again. So for those of you, and I wanna make sure we at least name this, for those of you who are in situations where in some way you are being abused over and over again, this is not, hey, forgive them, stay there, keep getting hurt. There is a process here to pursuing healthy forgiveness and a healthy restoration. The power dynamic may be such that you skip straight to step two. But the forgiveness process involves confronting injustice, not continuing to get beat up by it. Forgiveness also doesn't mean that we have to restore them into full relationship with us. We can forgive even if they never apologize or change We can forgive even if they are dead and gone and restoration is impossible. However, forgiveness means keeping the door to restoration unlocked, even if the other person has slammed it shut until something or someone else locks it for you. We stay open to a future moment of community and restoration in as much as it is up to us. Someone once said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Unforgiveness eats away at us and our soul, not at them. And unforgiveness swimming about in a community eats away at the health and peace of that community. Look again at verse 17. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Why do you take this grievance to the community itself? Why keep escalating the number of people who know about it? That feels like it could be very dangerous. And why would they... Why would Jesus be okay with them being removed from fellowship? 
Again, a loved and pursued, door open to restoration, but removed in some way. Because the health of the community matters so much to Jesus. This whole chapter is about how significant the health of the community is. And so it needs to matter to us as well. Part of truly belonging in a community will mean committing to the health of the community. It's committing to the health of the community. Others get involved because we are all agreeing together to commit to the health of the community. Again, hey, I need you to, to help my brother or sister and I here because for the good of the community, we need help making peace not gathering people to take a side, but committing together to the health of the community. And if you are going to feel like you belong some place, like you belong to some people, you're going to have to decide that you personally are committed to the health of that community. When people move among us, do they sense a place to be authentic. A place to forgive and be forgiven. Do they sense a people who are committed to the health of the community? And by the way, this is also true of our belonging in Cowlitz County as a whole. If we belong to this community that God has placed us in for the good of the community to love and serve and make beautiful things in the community around us, these things are true as well. Are we ready to forgive? Are we committed to the health of the community? Are we willing to confront injustice? And is that true? for this community that calls ourselves East Hills. I hear so many people come in and say, I feel like I can belong here. I feel like I could belong here. And that is so good. I love it. I think they sense the authenticity and the forgiveness and the commitment to actually belong here. We all have to be part of this together, confronting, forgiving, committing, belonging to one another. So let me pray for us as we do that together. Father God, we know that we belong to you first and foremost, that through Jesus, we've been brought into your family, that we don't belong to you as slaves, but we belong to you as children, that you've adopted us that you love us and you choose us. And God, that is overwhelming. We know that you've called us to belong to one another, to commit to the health of your body. To address the injustices in our own hearts to ask for forgiveness from others, to forgive those who've hurt us. Father, would you give us the courage to step into those conversations? Would you give us wisdom? Father, would you make this a place of peace? Would you give us the ability to make peace happen here?
in Cowlitz County and the group of people called East Hills and our families and our neighborhoods. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.